This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, May 22nd, 2017, the President's Committing Crimes edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my regular co-host, Scott Lucas, who's a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing today, Scott? Well, since I haven't been charged with any crimes myself, I consider it to be a very positive week so far. Well, going by the stories we're discussing today, that puts you in an elite and elect uh, category. No Cristala today. Uh, sorry to regular listeners who were looking forward to her. She's in Tunisia, or Tunisia, if you prefer. But don't worry, we have a special guest. We'll get to him later. Uh, two topics today. First, Brazil's president is caught on tape discussing bribes to cover up illegal activity. He's in the job because his predecessor was impeached for impropriety. Is Brazilian democracy in a death spiral? Second, Donald Trump had a horrible, no good, very bad week in Washington. As scandal, error and embarrassment pile up in unprecedented quantities, is impeachment now a serious prospect? Michel Temer is the president of Brazil because his predecessor was impeached for mishandling of public funds. That came in the context of a vast corruption scandal, known popularly as car wash, that seemed to taint almost every politician and party in the country with plausible allegations of corruption. Now Temer himself has apparently been caught out, secretly recorded on tape discussing what appears to be obstruction of justice. The recording carried out by Juezle Batista, a shady billionaire implicated in corruption scandals and trying to save his own skin. As of the time of recording, the president's come out swinging in his own defense, spraying accusations of doctored evidence and insider trading at his accusers. But to put it mildly, things don't look good. So, with a second president in a year on the precipice of involuntary departure and most of the Brazilian Congress under investigation, is democracy on life support in South America's largest country? Joining us uh, to discuss this, not that Scott and I aren't deep experts in Brazilian political affairs, uh, we have returning guest and friend of the podcast, Marco Vieira, who's a senior lecturer in international politics and knows his way around South America, both personally and in terms of his expertise. So, Marco, um, this sounded complicated before. It seems like it's just got even more complicated if you could give us the uh, cliff notes here on what this scandal is about, especially this latest chapter, I think the listeners will be as grateful as I am. Hello, hello, Adam. Hello, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, podcast is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I read recently that uh, one of the toughest jobs in the world is to be a political scientist in Brazil. So I, I've been asked this question quite often, I think since this time last year when Dilma was impeached. That is precisely what's going on in Brazil. So it's not <laughs> an easy question, but uh, there's some interesting uh, uh, developments recently that give us some clues on what's going to happen next. So a year ago, exactly, Dilma was uh, uh, impeached, uh, basically uh, on the grounds that she was cooking uh, the books in Brazil and that most Brazilians did not understand exactly 
what uh, uh, the allegations were, accusations that opposed to her, uh, that led to her impeachment. Basically, what happened then was that you had an economy in uh, 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 now collapsing. Uh, we had uh, 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 massive protests on the streets going on, and you had allegations of corruption, corruption in all levels of, of government. So fast forward to Michelle Temer, that was her vice president, had took power after she uh, was impeached, and you have a country in an economic situation which is not any better <laughs> uh, from the time she was impeached. Protests are still going on on social media and also uh, on the streets. Just yesterday, there were massive protests in uh, all the major Brazilian cities asking for Temer to resign. And uh, uh, corruption is still going on, and uh, all the major uh, uh, politicians, both in the opposition and the government, are somehow involved mm. in corruption allegations. I just want an, an, another point here, and what is, what is a kind of irony, so if you look at Temer, who was a key strategist of Dilma's downfall, uh, and Aécio Neves, that you did not, did not mention, but was the guy who ran against Dilma in the elections uh, for uh, presidential elections, was the runner-up in the elections, was also caught on tape with this very same individual asking him for $700,000 know, to help him pay for lawyers that will uh, defend him on the car wash allegations. Mm. Car wash is this big operation by the federal police and prosecutors after uh, the, those major businessmen and, and, and politicians. So the guy who was campaigning for Dilma to be impeached on basically on the grounds of corruption was caught himself. Now on this tape, Aécio Neves from the PSDB, the, the Brazilian Social Democratic Party. So uh, as you said, man, is endemic, is structural, and mm. the types of uh, relationships between politicians and, 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 and the private sector is something that we'll have to change. Mm. But what's coming next is, yeah. is still a big question mark there. So, I mean, this sounds like something out of The Sopranos or, or, or maybe The Wire, as, as I understand it. I mean, there is literally a wire involved, so I suppose that puts, puts one in mind of it. But so the background is that there's been a huge amount of graft and corruption and... Uh, Uh, money moving around between the private sector and, and elected officials. But specifically what happened in this case is that this billionaire who seemingly was about to get hung for it by the investigators broke out uh, the microphones, uh, went round to meet these extremely senior politicians with whom he claims he had corrupt ties and then recorded them talking like characters in The Godfather uh, about how to shut down investigations, how to obstruct justice, uh, conduct uh, uh, you know, bribery upon bribery, if you will, to, to escape the, the allegations against them. Like, that sounds terrible. And if these tapes say what the reports say they say, one would assume that all these guys are at the very least, losing their jobs and possibly going to jail. Is that the outcome that we can expect here? Are, are, are these people going to be defenestrated imminently? Not necessarily. In my view, three possible scenarios here. One is that Temer will stay, stay on. He's fighting back. Basically, he said that it was a huge setup. Basically, the opposition plus this guy, because he's you know, about to be really uh, in, in hot waters with, with justice, uh, they decided to set him up, and, 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 and basically what he said has been edited, 
uh, he sent the the tape or, or asked the tape to be sent to experts to analyze it, and he said that he has been uh, uh, at least 50 instances in which the tape has been edited to actually set him up. Uh, he said that is a huge conspiracy to bring his government down because mm -hmm. of the reforms he's trying to uh, to pass through the Congress. Which is ironic, because his government came into power as a result of a huge conspiracy. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess uh, turnabout is fair play, some people might say. There you are. The thing is that, I mean, he was elected... Oh, I mean, he was elected. He came to power with three main uh, uh, proposals. One was to reform uh, 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 the labor law, which is a massive... Uh, uh, sticking point now in Brazil because the, the measures you want to put in place are really harsh uh, and there's huge opposition uh, against it. So public opinion uh, heavily against it. Uh, he put us also economic package with uh, very harsh uh, austerity measures which also have a huge impact on, 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 on the economy, public service in particular. And he said that this is, again, this is an attempt to push those reforms back. They're trying to mainly the opposition party, but it's not going down very, very uh, well with uh, a public opinion. I think this is one thing. And the second thing he's saying, look, I mean, we've been on this turmoil for over three years now. The economy is starting to show some signs of recovery. Is this the right time to bring my government down? Right, mm. you need to stay on until 2018. And some people in the business sector are saying, "Do you know what? He has a point there because more crisis, more political crisis will not solve the problem in the short term. We need to keep this guy on until at least the elections next year." Uh, but I don't think this will happen because, as you said, uh, the evidences are so uh, um, uh, uh, conclusive that he was saying something. Basically, he said in one of the the the, 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 the you no know, in the tape. Uh, that, oh, uh, this guy, the first thing he said was, do you know what, the, the former uh, Speaker of the House, uh, the, the, uh, of the representatives, who is in jail now, we need to keep him quiet, right? He's, uh, and what I'm doing, I'm just paying him a monthly stipend, uh, or I think 500,000, uh, I think it's 500,000 reais, I can't have to get to this figure, right? But that's pr pretty much around that figure. It's a, nice and, it's a nice round number, so yeah. let's go with it for now. And then Tamer said, reply, yes, please, do it. No, we have to keep it going, no, some, something along those lines, and uh, 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 which pretty much says everything. And before mm -hmm. that, he was telling him how much judges he has on his pocket, how many people he has paid, and he was saying just, yes, yes, yes. I mean, how come you meet the President of the Republic 11 o'clock in the evening? Now, uh, uh, on his uh, 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 residence, official residence, to discuss all the illegalities he has been involved with. Mm -hmm. Even he has, hasn't said what he did say, uh, it would be really suspicious. Be, right, like, uh, like it seems pretty unlikely that a randomly selected private citizen, however rich, could just call up the president and meet mm -hmm. in his basement at 11 p.m. to, like, discuss matters of the day so the, the the very existence of the meeting in the circumstances it happens suggests an unusual and suspicious relationship mm -hmm. between this president and this uh, and this man i mean it 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 seems like on the one hand you know one can hear uh, and understand his calls for for stability but we have here a government that wasn't elected in the first place, that's trying to do some controversial policy stuff, 
And its best defense against being thrown out now is, well, everybody is at least as corrupt as I'm being accused of being, which, you know, maybe that's true, uh, but it certainly doesn't sound like the kind of defense that's going to like stabilize a turbulent political system. You know, uh, calm down, everybody relax. Uh, this goes on so often, it's barely worth remarking upon. Um, this sounds like it could potentially be like the uh, the end of at least some version of the Brazilian political system, right? Because in a normal political system, a healthy, functional one, you have one bunch of people in power, they've become corrupt, everybody finds out about it, somebody else in the opposition party can then run a campaign to throw them out off the back of that, and you know they take power. But here we have everybody in every party simultaneously being accused of massive corruption. How can the system keep working if that's the case? What we're witnessing at the moment is the slow decay and death of the so-called New Republic in Brazil, which is precisely the the regime that came after the dictatorship in 1980, 1985. So it's, I mean, over those 30 years, the, the, the political uh, establishment was based on these types of relationships. It hasn't changed uh, uh, with Lula, because Lula, what he did was to co-opt you know, those politicians and say, you can carry on. This, this, this was uh, Lula da Silva, who was the president uh, from before, before uh, was Tem- Temer's predecessor of the same party as Temer's predecessor, who was very long-serving and who mm-hmm. re- changed in many ways the Brazilian government's uh, relationship to like service provision, wealth redistribution, those kind of things. He created a, a large edifice of uh, uh, public spending that lies at the heart of this scandal, right? Absolutely. But Lula's uh, innovation was to use the system to empower himself and his party, at the same time operate within it very skillfully, and at the same time put in place social policies that have never been attempted before in Brazil. So he didn't reform it. He just used it in a way that had never been used before in Brazil. All this component of this, the social component was really positive, but it was basically surfing the wave of the global commodity boom hmm. that uh, brought in a lot of uh, uh, revenue uh, to the country. He was able to do that. And then you know, the economic factor is very important here as well because he was caught, or his party was caught, uh, uh, in uh, back in 2000, 2005, uh, paying bribes to Congress people to vote along the lines of the, the government's position, or the men's salon, was the monthly stipends mm-hmm. paid. It, interestingly enough, nothing actually happened in terms of his popularity. So the impact on him was minor, right? Why? Because the economy is growing, people, Brazil is living in a situation of almost full employment, uh, and it just... Now nothing of consequence happened. With Dilma, which was much less evident, you know, even though Petrobras was a massive scandal, but there was no direct links in the same way that there were links with uh, some very close associates of Lula da Silva during this Mensa loan, this uh, monthly stipends payment. But the consequence was much harsher on her case. Why? Mm. Because the economy was going downhill. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, unhappiness and discontent towards her government. So this is another factor that needs to be also uh, 
Right. So, so the basic, so the, the the basic framework is the entire system is riddled to the core with corruption. But there was a distinction within it between those who were attempting to use the corrupt system to benefit sort of a, a party platform of wealth redistribution and those who were attempting to use it for, I guess, more right of center business ends. And so long as that wealth redistribution was happening and the economy was okay, people were inclined to look past some of this. But now, now you just have a situation where everything is terrible, the economy is getting worse, people are feeling poorer, and everyone is ostentatiously corrupt and being caught being that way. So uh, that, that doesn't sound good. I couldn't have said better. Uh, that's how I see the picture right now in Brazil. And what worries me is that you know, it's like building, uh, it's like demolishing a building without having scaffolding of another one put in place, right? It's just bring the whole thing down, mm-hmm. right? And you don't know what's going to be built on its place because it's not going to carry on like this. This is for sure is the end of it. And the car wash uh, operation uh, has uh, actually triggered you now this process, but uh, the alternatives uh, are not great. Now, in one hand, you have what basically has been the case in other countries as well, the rise of those uh, ostentatious uh, uh, populist uh, figures who, uh, who claim they can save the country and the nation by putting in place uh, rather uh, radical and, 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 and anti-democratic platforms of, uh, of, of what would look like a new type of, of Brazil under, for instance, uh, 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 Jair Bolsonaro. I think I've mentioned him before. He's a, a, a MP, a member of the, the Brazilian Congress, who has been uh, uh, quite outspoken on, on, on against PT, against corruption, but he's a no right-wing uh, uh, extremist. I wouldn't call him anything different than that. Now, the things he have been sa- has, has said in the past mm. are really outrageous. And on the other hand, Lula. Lula is not uh, uh, is politically alive now, and uh, one of the options available if Temer resigns is to call uh, elections. To do it, to be complicated because you have to amend the constitution because in those cases when a president resigns before the end of the term the the, the speaker of the, the house of representatives is the first in line to replace him but the former is in jail and the current is also under investigation so the second in line is the uh, the speaker of the senate who is also in invi- under investigation right. and the third in line is the chief justice of the, uh, the supreme court who is someone who uh, uh, people have some reservations about having someone from 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 the judiciary in the executive? Uh, the, the, the so, so it's literally impossible to find anybody in the chain of succession within either the executive or the legislative branches who isn't facing plausible charges of corruption. Literally, at this no point. one. And then what happens is that to amend the constitution, you need two thirds in both houses to pass it, which is a is a tough call. And uh, the government doesn't want it at all because if it happens, Lula is the most likely uh, 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 candidate to get elected in a short run because he's running really high on the polls at the moment. So, and they're doing everything they can on their power to avoid that scenario. My understanding, Marco, I'm trying to find a silver lining here, uh, is that there has good been... Good luck, if, yeah. if I may say. I'm <laughs> going to be interested to hear how this goes. There has been some recovery in commodity prices in recent months. So has there been enough of a, a stabilization in the, British, in the Brazilian economy, which buys a little bit of time during this crisis? 
Not really, because it has not yet been felt in the Brazilian economy in a way that would make a difference in terms of public opinion mm. or job creation, or they created some sort of uh, perception that things are getting better. Mm. Uh, at the moment, uh, even though the government is just putting out the figures and say, okay, we think we managed to stop the bleeding of the economy and we are in an upturn now, which is a good thing, but it's not yet something that can be uh, uh, or have a, a clear uh, impact on, on public opinion, for instance. And I think for, even for the average Brazilian, they are at this point in time saying, do you know what? No, it's, it's, we cannot just go, go on with this, right? Uh, the message that uh, Temer tried to pass on on his uh, national uh, uh, no, statement when he, he spoke on TV after the allegations was, please leave me here because uh, we are on the brink of getting out of this economic recession. So it's, it would be uh, uh, very bad for the country if you have now another political crisis at this particular moment uh, in Brazil. But it's not. People say, you know what, uh, we cannot carry on with this. We need really to, uh, to have someone who has some legitimacy and decency mm. <laughs> to carry on this job. You know? And uh, at the moment, uh, the only candidate, if we do not, if Brazil doesn't, hold uh, uh, elections, and it's unlikely that it will happen before the scheduled elections next year, is the Carmen Lucia. She's the chief judge in the Supreme Court. Uh, and this is the name that is the most likely name in, in the case that he resigned, but he says he's not going to resign. And, and resignation at this point is his decision. There's no one that can do it for him. Yeah, I mean, it sounds almost like when a, the idea of a Supreme Court judge taking over the country sounds like when a company goes bankrupt and like into receivership where they bring in somebody from the outside to keep the administration ticking over in the hope that some way can be found to you know make it good well see that's why i'm wondering if again still searching for that silver lining at least can you say that we do have a judicial branch we do have some notion of rule of law that's in play here even if that leads us to this extraordinary situation where you extend that the judiciary in effect takes control of the executive if only for a short term. But that's the thing which is also concerning Brazil now is how the, the branches of power have been uh, affected or infected by, by the highly politicized nature of, uh, uh, of how things have been conducted in terms of dealing with these corruption cases. So you see that uh, there is one... A, just to give you one example, one uh, um, Supreme Court judge called Jumar Mendes, he has been uh, already caught on tape talking with Diasio Neves and saying that he will do whatever is in his power to help him out, mm. right? He has long uh, 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 and well-established links with PSDB. Uh, Temer, uh, one uh, judge in the Supreme Court died in very suspicious circumstances recently in a plane crash, and Tamer, who was his, his job, replaced this judge with someone who is very close to him. Mm. Uh, he's the thing with politics in Brazil is that the politics and, and the government in particular is not working for the country. They're working to save themselves, mm. save themselves from prison, basically. Uh, and this is really uh, you know, unhelpful when you think about Brazil in the long term, what can be done mm. you know, uh, in terms of uh, having something that can 
uh, effectively uh, uh, you can call that Brazil uh, is now in a better place than it is at the moment. Well, it sounds like the new ritual at the beginning of every political meeting is going to be for all participants to pat each other down to find out if there are any concealed recording devices. (laughs) Because you'd think by this point, from the sequence of events described, people would have worked out that that was something they need to be afraid of, but it seems to be a recurring recurring feature. Uh, I don't know, I guess we're coming to talk about the United States uh, in in our next item, uh, where I suppose on the one hand, you know, we might... uh, take assurance that it doesn't sound quite so bad, given that it is terrible by, by, by uh, you know, uh, the standards we're familiar with there. On the other hand, uh, it doesn't seem like the president there mm. needs anyone to wear a wire because yeah. he just goes on national television and says the stuff that you would normally need to trick him into saying so you could, so you could record it. Yeah, if there is a silver lining here, is that... I mean, Scott's tried to get you to mm. say yeah. one twice. <laughs> tried twice, failed twice, yeah. but if you got one in reserve, hit us with it. That's something better can emerge from this mess, right? I think there's a realization that this system is over, which is a system fundamentally corrupt. So everything is on the table now. It's up to people in Brazil to decide what they want to do with it. They have a historic opportunity to change things uh, because there's no, nothing is done now uh, in the dark. Everything, the, the, the cards are on the table. And I think it's up to everyone in the country to discuss how they want to rebuild the country on a different on a different grounding, and uh, and I see it as positive because it's a, an opportunity. But do they do that, or do they just simply go for a charismatic leader, whether it's Lula on the left or your uh, MP on the hard right? There is a danger and a risk, and I'm afraid that is the most likely outcome of this. But it's not necessarily. W- the case. I think things can be changed in a way which you can uh, 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 now improve and have a more transparent, accountable uh, government. Order and progress. Thank you very <laughs> much, Marco, for Thank your you, uh, pleasure. For time today. Thank you very much. It's time for Number of the Week, the round where we take a digit, link it to a news story and chatter away. Marco, you're our guest of honour. What number have you brought for us today? My number is 7%, which is the number, the percentage that the Brazilian economy has contracted in the last couple of years. Ouch. This is unprecedented in Brazil's history, economic history. It has never happened. And it gives you some sort of uh, idea of how important the economic dimension is to what's going on in Brazil uh, in terms of the crisis, the, the, the perfect storm that Brazil is going through at the moment. Scott, what do you got for us? 100 million. Go big again. Uh, and foreshadowing our second item today uh, on Mr. Trump, because 100 million is a side benefit of his trip to Saudi Arabia, albeit not given to him. That would be a conflict of interest, right? But given to his daughter, Ivanka, or actually, let's be precise, given to a uh, women's entrepreneur fund, which is overseen by Ivanka Trump. Now, this would seem to be a jolly good thing, a spirit of generosity by the Saudis to empower women, were it not for the fact that, of course, that at the same time when they were empowering women by giving $100 million, they were, for example, shutting female journalists out of the press conferences held by U.S. and uh, Saudi officials. 
and of course that there were questions about the actual rights of women in Saudi Arabia to pursue careers or even to be uh, have some type of social or economic independence from, say, their husbands or their families. And then, of course, there is the further question, which is inconveniently raised, that Donald Trump was very, very critical of the Saudis giving $100 million to the Clinton Foundation, saying this was an unacceptable breach of respectable behavior to give money to any foundation headed up by a current or former political figure so if it was bad for the Clintons to do it, why is it jolly good for Ivanka to do it? Mm. No doubt we'll have explanations in the near future to explain this. It's almost like he's a massive hypocrite. <laughs> ah, heaven help that that be the case. I am, a, I am going to go with 100,000 as well, uh, but it is 100,000 pounds, which is the threshold that the uh, Conservative Party has announced in its manifesto uh, after which it will attempt to claw back the costs of social care for those who have uh, died of long-running diseases that require a lot of that, such as, uh, such as dementia. It's therefore become known as a policy proposition as the dementia tax, and uh, it seems to have provoked quite the stir, uh, despite the fact that this election campaign was supposed to be a straightforward romp in which the Conservative Party smashed uh, ill-prepared and ineptly led Labour Party and accrued an enormous majority. Uh, this is getting a lot of airtime. It seems to have put the fear into uh, quite a few Conservatives that it may go down very badly with precisely the ageing demographic that they most need to turn up and, and vote for them. And uh, I guess my only additional comment would be that it seems slightly baffling, given that the one thing everyone seems to be able to, to agree on is that the Conservative Party is attempting to seek a, as vague a mandate as has ever been achieved uh, by, by a government in the course of British history. They're basically running on nothing on any of the big issues other than trust us uh, and we'll see how it goes. So the idea that they would have needlessly put forward this weirdly specific policy that seems to alienate people they really need to show up and vote for them uh, seems a little bit baffling. And if it turns out to be uh, a less successful election than the Conservatives had believed at the beginning. I suspect uh, whoever and by whatever process um, put this uh, proposal into the manifesto will be at the centre of the autopsy. It's hard to know where to start in summarising the scandalous events that have enveloped US President Donald Trump since we last discussed him on these airwaves, but let's try. On one track, two weeks ago, he fired James Comey, director of the FBI. At first, it was denied that his reason for doing this was to shut down an investigation into his presidential campaign's ties to Russian interference in the presidential election of 2016, but that story rapidly fell apart, and the president himself admitted in a TV interview that Russia had been on his mind when making the decision. Soon enough, and sure enough, Comey, a rather meticulous fella, uh, I think it's fair to say, revealed that he had kept contemporaneous memos detailing his interactions with the president while in office, and that Trump had tried to pressure him to drop his investigation into the behavior of former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, current target of much of the heat of that Russia investigation. An independent special counsel, 
uh, in the form of former FBI Director Robert Mueller, has now been appointed to continue the Russia inquiry. And Comey has said he'll testify publicly before the Senate Intelligence Committee's separate investigation into the same matters. So that all looks bad. Add to the mix this. The day after the Comey firing set Washington alight, Trump met with Russian Foreign Minister and the Russian Ambassador, uh, the two Sergeys, and by multiple credible reports, gave away intelligence of the most secret kind in the course of the chatter he enjoyed with them. That was intelligence obtained from Israel uh, about ISIS in the process burning a precious inside source and enraging a close ally. Needless to say, the president was mortified by the error and apologized shamefacedly. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, he forced his ashen-faced staff uh, to go out of the White House and face the media to pretend that either this didn't happen or that it wasn't a problem because he has no shame. It goes without saying this would likely mean a disgraceful exit from office for any normal politician, but if normal standards were being upheld, Donald Trump wouldn't be the president in the first place. So we ask ourselves... If not now, when might the Republicans who control both houses of Congress consider removing this president from office, either for criminal conduct or for being unfit to perform his duties? Scott, that was a long intro, but my God, it's hard to get through it. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> like surely this is the worst collection of things that have befallen any president in scandal terms in the history of the republic it doesn't get much worse than this does it i'm sure all the trump supporters out there are appreciating your unbiased neutral presentation of what has happened i think i'm kind of past that right now because i just don't think even the people whose job it is working for him to make the best case they can this is all fine are basically unable to do it or at least like if they if they just about manage to rationalize their way to some half-cocked semi-explanation, then no sooner have they issued it than the dude himself shows up on TV to basically uh, ride roughshod over the whole thing by saying the exact opposite or admitting that he's done whatever they have been spending all day trying to deny he's done. It's not even possible to present the best version of events for him because he himself will contradict you five minutes later. Well, I think we're at an interesting short-term juncture in that effective introduction you put out, which is, as we're recording right now, uh, Donald Trump has concluded the first leg of his overseas tour, two days in Saudi Arabia, uh, a meeting with uh, leaders and representatives of uh, Arab states, Turkey, Pakistan. Laying his hands on a sinister glowing orb uh, with with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. A a proud tradition of American presidents as they travel overseas, of course. Yeah, an incident which, when captured uh, in a wonderful photograph, led Greg Carlstrom, the journalist, to say, worst superhero movie ever. Hmm. uh, But for the White House, of course, they weren't talking about this sinister picture of strongmen and would-be strongmen touching an orb to fight terrorism. They are talking about <laughs> leadership by mm-hmm. Trump, and this continues with his visit to Israel, and then uh, the idea being that he's visiting the three centers of religion, uh, or the centers of the three major religions in the world. He's moving to Rome and the Vatican to meet the Pope, and then to talk to European leaders at a NATO summit. So the idea is that the White House is going to regain the headlines from that series of uh, at least disruptions, some would say catastrophes, that have been encountered in recent weeks, 
but are part of the wider Trump-Russia investigation. That's where we are. I think it's not going to be a long-term uh, regaining of the initiative by the White House. So let's then assess what it means. Right, because, like, I mean, on the one hand, I guess you could put a brave face on all of this and say, look, he's gaining these lavish uh, receptions and friendly treatment from these people who, I guess, because they've worked out that he's like dumb and easily susceptible to flattery, uh, this is the way to this, this is the way to to get to him. So. Uh, uh, you know, he's he's commanding visible camaraderie and respect on the global stage. But like on the other hand, if the main issue is that you're being accused of being like a, a wannabe authoritarian with no respect for the rule of law, a bunch of weird photo shoots where you pal around with unaccountable autocrats uh, notorious for their corruption, like that's um, not exactly a story killer in the long run, is it? No, I I think... This is all going to come to a grinding halt in terms of PR control when he gets to Europe and European life. Uh, when people like the Germans, who have no love lost for him, are not going to sit there and just flatter him. When I think uh, the French are going to let their doubts be expressed. When even we had the leak this past week that the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, said that Trump has a 12-second attention span, which That's I thought was pretty quite generous. generous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Snap. Snap. <laughs> uh, so, and then, of course, you're going to have a more open press dynamic as well. Mm. So that's going to be, I think, the immediate turn in, in terms of the overseas trip. But then when he returns to the U.S. next week, the question is what has happened in the interim. I think we're in a position now where the leaks are not going to stop, uh, whether it be from James Comey himself, whether it be from others within uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, other U.S. agencies. And so it's just going to be a death by a thousand cuts leading up to Comey's testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Does that mean impeachment? No. It, what it means is, however, that I think the White House is increasingly tied down. Uh, it's a very fractured White House anyway, uh, with various groups at each other's throats. And I think the impact of this is, is that what do you need to show leadership? You need a domestic agenda where you have the passage of legislation. That's not going to happen. You're not going to have a repeal of Obamacare. You're not going to have the tax recoding, you're not going to have the infrastructure package, or you try to show leadership in terms of commander-in-chief directing foreign policy, and for all the sound and fury on this trip abroad, I don't think you're going to be able to have a substantial initiative where Trump says, all right, look, NATO, you know, I'm back in charge here, here's what we do, or here's how we really get to grips with what's happening in the Middle East. And so we are then back to a White House which is just on the defensive day in, day out, whether it be Trump himself going on Twitter, making things worse, or the embattled press secretary and the person I feel quite sorry for, Sean Spicer, uh, either coming out from amidst bushes or just standing behind a podium going, okay, uh, here's my weak defense for the day. Please don't hit me. Hmm. I mean, I just keep coming back to the fact that the central thing that one really needs to understand about Donald Trump is that he is dumb as a box of rocks. Uh, and that coexists with his being uh, corrupt and entitled and having authoritarian instincts and being bad as a person and for American democracy in all sorts of ways. But even if you were all of those things, if you had even a modicum of self-awareness uh, and 
uh, even self-preservational instinct uh, about how you get away with being any of those things within the American political system, you would not behave in the way that, that he's done. And that's the point was well made during the course of all of these events unfolding because um, parallels to Richard Nixon and the Watergate investigation that ultimately brought him down have been swirling around. That um, The major distinction is that while Richard Nixon had done some really bad stuff wrong, he would never have got himself into the position where he was caught with his pants down uh, so comprehensively because he managed to string this stuff out for months and years through carefully maintaining a public version of events, which he could then pressure using all the tools at his disposal, uh, the system into accepting until eventually that became untenable. Whereas Donald Trump, within a day of engineering this firing of the FBI director and putting out everybody on his team to defend the disingenuous claim that this had been done because of unrelated uh, past misconduct to do with the the, the Hillary Clinton um, email issue. He then went on TV and with no more uh, pressure than just a question being asked, why did you do this, promptly came out and basically said, yeah, I was worried about the Russia thing, so I fired him. He then goes into this meeting with the Russians and, according to contemporary accounts, says, yeah, you might have heard that the uh, the FBI director uh, got fired. I did that because uh, I was under pressure about Russia. Now that pressure's gone away. Like He is literally confessing directly to obstruction of justice, the thing you would normally need to really, really work hard to provide some case uh, demonstrating intent to uh, if you were trying to bring down a president on national television, almost unprovoked and unsolicited, or in meetings with foreign diplomats when he knows that, that, that people are you know, going, to be, going to be watching and, and, and recording it. And that, um, that means that even though Washington is full of people with a vested interest in helping Donald Trump make all this go away, or at least stabilizing it, he's making it almost impossible for even the most in-the-tank person to succeed in helping him in that way, because he doesn't seem to understand uh, what it is that he shouldn't do or say in order to remain the right side of the rule of law and uh, and and all standards governing governing his conduct. And if you don't understand what crimes are or what the rules that bind your office are, then it's awful hard to uh, uh, to craftily subvert them and find ways of making it appear you're on the right side of them, even even when you're not. Which puts everyone in an impossible position, it seems. Well, you logically and eloquently presented, Adam, but your logic and eloquence is facing uh, the dump on a desk moment. And what I'm referring to is that when Anderson Cooper, the uh, CNN anchor, was carrying out an interview with a Trump defender, one of those talking heads that appears across uh, the American media, Jeffrey Lord, uh, Cooper got so frustrated with Lord's defense of all those actions you've just talked about that he finally said, you know, if Trump took a dump on a desk, you would defend that as well. Uh, Later apologized for that remark, but it actually was quite pertinent, which is that no matter what Trump does, my experience now is is that you have a significant minority amongst the American population which will defend him by saying, for example, you shouldn't be trying to tear the U.S. president down. 
a comment that I had directly on one of my social media feeds when I was trying to raise these points, or this is all the Clinton News Network and its allies that are uh, going after Trump, or they'll bring up some false conspiracy theory. There's a, a an unfounded theory around the death of Seth Rich, a Democratic operative mm-hmm. that's being used to deflect from this. He's They'll the new Vince Foster. Yeah, that try any number of tactics to say, no, 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 you're just hyping this. And I think you just have to confront that, that this is something beyond where we were in Richard Nixon's day. My hope is, is that what we're going to see, especially in light of talking to Marco about Brazil in our first item, is that the American institutions are going to have to get beyond all of this and and call this to account in a very systematic way, which is going to require pursuing this Trump-Russia investigation to its logical end, and at the same time, being prepared for any other abuse of power, uh, whether it be through the executive orders, whether it be through uh, his attempt to just steamroller the courts, the media, even Congress itself. So despite everything you're saying, that this should be a nailed-shut case, that he is not competent to lead, we've got a long road ahead of us. Mm. I mean, here's a simultaneous case for optimism and pessimism, right? The pessimistic case goes like this. If people like Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives and notional driver of the Republican policy agenda, or Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, or uh, any of the other elected officials who potentially have it in their power to begin and see through an impeachment proceeding, or or at least confront Trump in public in ways that that make that more likely. If they were going to turn on him, they probably, on the merits of his total unfitness for office and just ludicrously ostentatious unsuitability for even minor public uh, uh, station, let, let alone this, they would have done it by by now. Like the, that, he's done so many completely unacceptable things that if merit was the issue, case would long since have been closed. Clearly, their calculation is that the political cost to them of removing him, whatever he's done, is just too high for it to be worth carrying out. Because it's not even about someone signing their legislation. If he was gone. Vice President Mike Pence, who would replace him, would happily sign anything that they put in front of him from a Republican Congress with the twin benefits that, A, he would understand it, and, B, he wouldn't say stupid stuff that makes it really hard, much harder to to, to pass. Um, So I think the calculation is political. Clearly, they're afraid that enough people in the Republican base who might turn up in their districts or their states to make life hard for them still, for whatever perverse, bass-ackwards, anti-establishment, feverish reason uh, think that supporting this guy is, uh, is, is the right way to go. So they, they've disengaged from the merits. There, there's just no turning them around on it. However, his support and his survival, therefore, is clearly premised basically exclusively at this point on the shield provided by mm. that sizable rump of popularity. No one anywhere in the entire Republican Party elected establishment is any longer in the slightest doubt that this guy is totally unfit for office and has committed uh, offenses of the sort that procedurally could see you to an impeachment almost overnight. If at some point his popularity cracks for any reason, then it feels like this thing could 
all unraveled really, really, really quickly because nobody has an interest in preserving him. No one has an interest in remaining allied to him at all. And that leads me to think that in some ways the key variable in all this is probably the conservative media. That at the moment, the reason why that die-hard 30-ish percent of the population just will not let their support for him go seems to be because they consume media from sources like Fox News, mm -hmm. where if you're watching it, like you would genuinely believe that the story of the last few weeks was Hillary Clinton's email still um, a failed attempt to smear Donald Trump with ludicrous accusations regarding a fake Russia story uh, and the exercise of the deep state's power to try and subvert a democratically triumphantly elected president. Like if you're in that world and consuming your information from primarily those sources, you see things on a factual level, on an imagined factual level, totally differently than you do if you're consuming any rudimentarily fair or balanced uh, media. And that leads me to suspect that if for some reason, and who knows what it might be, Fox News and one or two other sources, you know, if he fired Steve Bannon because he had a bad day and Breitbart turns on him, or if uh, Rupert Murdoch makes a calculation that he can make more money going one way rather than the other and pulled that rug from under him, this guy could be going down um, really, really, really hard in a really short period of time because none of the normal buttressing in your own party, where if the media turns on you and starts giving you a hard time from your own side, like people go out to bat for you and seek to defend you and hold you up as their president. None of that is going to happen. He will be completely on his own getting the fire hose in the public square. I, I think there's probably three scenarios to play out, um, given, again, uh, that, that presentation you give in combination with this dump on a desk notion. The first is, is that there may be something immediate that comes out of the Senate Intelligence Committee in particular, say with the former FBI director, James Comey, testimony. Yeah, because presumably which, he's going to go there and say, uh, yeah, I had a meeting with the president and the president told me to lay off uh, Mike Flynn. And, you know, that's highly illegal. That's basically the dictionary definition of obstruction of justice. See, but there's, a, there's also hints that it's not just going to be one incident. Uh, there are Comey's associates are coming out to s sort of indicate there was a pattern where Trump repeated this on more than one occasion, including to have assurances that he himself was not under investigation. Mm -hmm. So it yeah. could be that that's the tipping point. But I, it could be there's a second scenario that the agencies just get so fed up with Trump. And again, we come back to the power of institutions, whether they retain their power. So the Pentagon, the National Security Council, um, even in a sense the economic institutions say, look, you're just damaging us too much by holding on. But I think this third scenario is the one that probably plays out in the longer run, and that is when congressmen come back after the summer recess and have been back to their constituencies, and when every member of the House is having to weigh up their chances of re-election next year and a third of the members of the, Senate, a third of the, members of the Senate are going to have to, if this corrosion has just embedded itself so much that they are in danger of losing their seats, then you watch it happen. So I think that's probably for me at this point, barring just such a shocking moment from Comey's testimony or the testimony of uh, another source or a leak that shows uh, obstruction of justice. That's the scenario that Congress finally, after a few more months where nothing gets done, uh, you're in almost uh, a White House that is paralyzed 
then they say, okay, really, we got to start thinking about what our options here. Mm. And it, it just, every passing day just seems to reveal that how toxic this guy is. Everyone in his whole life that he's ever gone into business with, that he's ever had connections with, that has ever thought they were the smart one who was going to manipulate and use him for their own purposes, has ended up being uh, sucked dry of all of utility they have to give and then cast aside like a husk uh, at the side of his endless onward, upward progress, whether it's people loaning him money, uh, people going into collaborative business, people who've tried to manipulate his political appeal for their own advantage, and people like Paul Ryan uh, and people like his misbegotten White House staff uh, are, are know in the same uh in, in the same camp now the the few people that one feels a little bit more sorry for uh, are probably people uh like general mattis the secretary of defense or hr mcmaster the national security advisor who have this terrible dilemma which is that this guy is not safe to be allowed uh <laughs> out basically as the leader of the free world he is uh intemperate ignorant, incapable of focusing, uh, a, as, as genuine a danger to the well-being of the world as any of America's enemies uh, right now. Uh, and they have this choice. Do they stay in their positions knowing that if the terrible day comes that he orders something truly ridiculous, they can be in the room to basically say, no, we, we are not doing that, and here's why, uh, and hope that he then just moves on? Uh, or do they resign now refuse to be complicit in the fact that he's basically requiring them to um, to oversee policies they know are nonsense and to to, to lie or or at least badly bend the truth on his uh, on on his behalf and they're obviously deciding that that is the lesser of two evils that the that if you leave him alone with all the levers of power including military power without with only the oversight of the kind of people who would willingly and happily serve under Donald Trump then we could all die. So they just have to swallow their personal reservations and, and, and have their honor burned in order to maintain that last safety check or that last safety valve. Do you see any scenario where the damage is limited or even reversed if Trump remains in the White House? Which damage do you mean? I, like to America's talk, international reputation? Whether you're talking about the international reputation, whether you're talking to the domestic political culture in America, whether you're talking in terms of damage to institutions, do you see any scenario where if not saying Trump is a positive – we could at least say those Trump supporters out there, well, perhaps, in fact, uh, you know, he, he's not actually, you know, like this catastrophic uh, figure in American politics. Well, I think, I mean, he himself is a walking catastrophe in the sense that he can't, uh, you know, think or function clearly enough to be able to execute the duties of his office. The question really is, can the institutions continue to function even when stress tested to this uh, to this enormous extent, and look, you know, politics is cyclical, and presidents tend to new presidents tend to reflect in many ways a reaction against whatever the perceived primary attributes of their predecessor yeah. were. I think there's a case that could be made that if the if the basic institutions of elections and freedom of assembly and all of that remain in place, you know, this could be the thing that scares American democracy straight. Like looking into this abyss and seeing what's possible might well mean that uh, the kinds of candidates that people are prepared, even for instrumental reasons, to get behind and support, uh, move on to a more you know, sober 
responsible track. But the alternative analysis is that this has opened a door and that now that people know that saying crazy stuff loudly uh, to stadium audiences, uh, despite never having had elected office before or having a clue how to do the job, can get you to be president, who's to say someone isn't going to try that again every time? Uh, I largely agree with what you say. So, so to prevent this becoming an echo chamber, let me shift this just a little bit and respond to a couple folks who, uh, you know, engage with me in spirited discussion on Facebook the past few days. Sounds fun. Uh, where the argument was someone tried to measure all the negative coverage that Trump uh, has received. And, and there's been a study by Harvard which puts these random numbers on these things, like 93% negative coverage by CNN, and even Fox is 52% negative. New York Times, 85% negative. And I, my immediate response is, well, you know, negative coverage isn't because you're biased necessarily or you hate the guy. You know, it's negative because there are negative things which are happening. So that's the way I want to frame this. I think in the short term, if I, the, the greatest hope we have in terms of limiting this would be if someone like a Jared Kushner, because that's really who Trump listens to. He listens to friends and family. He doesn't really even listen to his agency heads. If Jared Kushner can get a hold of him and say, all right, you got to do this, this, and this. The problem is, is that Jared Kushner may well be implicated in the Trump-Russia investigation. Maybe. I caution. But, you know, and if so, that takes that firewall down as well. So I think what we're probably looking at and where, again, I echo what you say is that you have to look for the resilience of the institutions. In terms of what that means in terms of timeline, I personally expect there will be a President Pence in 2018. Uh, I think Trump will not last more than a year. But whether Pence takes over or whether Trump remains, I think what we're going to see in 2018 is going to be a huge shift to the Democrats in Congress which is going to change the dynamic of American politics again. And then, of course, in 2020, even if Trump is gone, I think the Republicans are going to be blamed for having allowed him into the White House and making so much mischief, which means that the Democrats regain the country then. And that will then take us beyond Trump, which is where are we in terms of those broader issues, whether America functions. You know, we've been talking about Brazil, whether American functions as a democracy or whether the corrosiveness of what you've referred to, the shouting culture, has done so much damage that we wind up in terms of a Groundhog's Day of uh, self-inflicted harm uh, beyond this uh, one individual. And I will say, as, as final final thought, I have really mixed feelings about how uh, the possible end of this come. Like, on the one hand... I can see people overseas are trying to like flatter the guy and keep him feeling good in order that they can then steer him towards not doing crazy stuff. And likewise, at home, uh, it, the the idea that a lot of people are starting to float is that a way needs to be found for him to be able to basically declare victory and leave office. It's a bit like how they talk about massaging dictators out in Africa or something. You need to find a soft landing for him that will mean that, that, that he will leave. And on the one hand, Given that I think he is this terrifying existential danger to both American institutions and life on the planet, anything that gets him out is, I guess, a necessary evil at worst. But the idea that he would reach the end of all of this and be allowed to continue living life thinking that it all went well and it was fine and there wasn't a problem here, that... that on some level horrifies me because he's fallen upwards his whole life despite being bad at everything he does and having a 
black character of the worst sort that a reckoning of some kind for the health of the country's soul seems to me to be required uh, at the end of all this. Let me add a coda to that because it's a couple of weeks ago I was in Dublin at this excellent conference assessing Trump and, and what might happen next. And one of the speakers, featured speakers, was uh, President Obama's head of strategic communications. And he's still a prominent consultant in Washington. And he said, with Trump, he said, to get to Trump, you have to to appeal to him and say something which he uh, thinks is his idea and that he agrees with. You have to sort of hand him what you want, but then let him take it over, at least in appearance. And I remember on the one hand thinking, well, this is a really smart guy. And then on the other hand thinking, thinking, this is exactly the wrong thing that you do in the long run. Because by handing Trump what he thinks is his idea, which the Saudis have done for the past couple of days, and which some would advise doing when he gets back to Washington, merely as you framed it quite well, leaves us diverting from the damage which has been caused. Mm-hmm. Because the idea simply is, is that when a child comes in and wrecks the house, no matter how much or how many plates, how many vases wind up shattered on the floor, you just say, there, there, mm. aren't you a good boy? And I'm not sure America can afford that. Right. Like if, if a cognitively dysfunctional, uh, unethical, corrupt gas bag basically comes into power, is reorienting the entire political discourse in such a way as to best manage him, uh, however successful it might be in the short term, really going to redound to the benefit of American culture and American institutions? I, I would tend to think not. But we shall return to this, no doubt, many times. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment or a, um, many other things which help others discover the pod. Uh, please do that. It's very helpful to us. Also, share us on social media if you like this episode. Put it out on Facebook or Twitter and, and tell people, hey, I discovered this great thing. It's fun. If you want to hear someone rail angrily for several minutes at one time about Donald Trump, then then this is really the place to go, except no substitute. You can also like our show page on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash pollworldview, where you can see links to the show and also to various other things that the hosts are doing. Uh, our participants today were Marco Vieira, who has since left us, uh, and also Scott Lucas. Where can people find you on social media, Scott? I'm on Twitter at scottlucas underscore ea. And always on Political Worldview's partner, the news and analysis website EA Worldview at eaworldview.com. I am Adam Quinn. Uh, That's Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook. You should look for me for an endless cavalcade of news-related posts and commentary. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that less often. Um, Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulsus Department at the University of Birmingham in England. And as you will have heard at the start of this podcast, we are now sponsored by the Alumni Fund of the University of Birmingham. So many thanks to them for their generous financial support, which is much appreciated kudos to you alumni we'll be back soon we very much hope you will be too bye be good folks